I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. In 1904, an engineer from Luxembourg arrived in the US, hoping to market some of his new inventions. He took out a number of patents and developed a keen interest in radio. He then launched a magazine, Modern Electronics, in 1908. This magazine was the first of his many subsequent publications, but it was one of these magazines that would change the face of popular culture and fiction forever. The man in question is Hugo Gernsback, and the magazine he published in April 1926 was Amazing Stories. In the introduction to the opening issue, he declared his publication a new sort of magazine for an entirely new modern audience. The fiction in Amazing Stories was to be, as Gernsback famously put it, the Jules Verne, H.G. Wells and Edgar Allan Poe type of story, a charming romance intermingled with scientific fact and prophetic vision. At the time, this new fiction didn't quite have a name. Gernsback called it Scientifiction, which didn't catch on. A few years later, however, he popularised a name which very much did catch on. Science Fiction. Now, Science Fiction, which I will frequently just call SF from here on in, had existed for a long time before 1926. Quite how long is something that's partly contested. But Amazing Stories was the first ever magazine devoted entirely to the genre. Gernsback, as editor and publisher, would have a profound influence on how SF developed. He's a controversial figure, notorious for underpaying or simply not paying authors who contributed to his magazines. He's a figure who moved science fiction in a direction that many authors and critics and fans were deeply unhappy with. But for better or worse, Gernsback, often cited as one of the fathers of science fiction, is a central figure in any history of the genre. The Hugo Awards, one of science fiction's highest honours, are named after Gernsback. And with the success of Amazing Stories, Gernsback soon established numerous other similar magazines, and other publishers noting their success quickly followed. Amazing Stories, Amazing Stories Annual, Amazing Stories Quarterly, Wonder Stories, Science Wonder Stories, Air Wonder Stories, Science Wonder Quarterly, Scientific Detective Monthly, Thrilling Wonder Stories. This was the age of pulp fiction. The time when genres truly became genres, not just science fiction, but detective stories, war stories, horror, westerns, fantasy, everything. All those categories that we use to divide up fiction and film and TV came together in the pulps at this time. We call it the pulp era because, again, the magazines that were printed at that time, there wasn't a lot of money in genre fiction, so a lot of editors were printing, or publishers rather, were printing on the cheapest paper they could find, and that was really, really pulpy paper, paper where you could still see the wood grain that, that it had been barely pulped just enough to print on, and that's where that name came from. This is Professor Lisa Yazek. I'm Lisa Yazek. I'm a professor of science fiction studies in the School of Literature, Media, and Communication at Georgia Tech. And what I'm really interested in is science fiction as a kind of global language that allows us to talk to each other about our experiences with and our hopes and fears about science and technology. And it allows us to do that um, across centuries and continents and cultures. So the pulps were very much the place where science fiction really came together as a popular genre. Some of the big names that people would probably know would be people like Isaac Asimov, um, Arthur C. Clarke, Robert Heinlein. The people who are considered sort of the great fathers of science fiction who really helped shape 
uh, modern science fiction as we know it today and who really brought the values to it and the techniques that we still associate with science fiction. But of course, as I look at in my own work, there were a number of, of great mothers of science fiction as well. And even there, there are some names that I expect people would know, uh, such as Judith Merrill or maybe even Carol M. Schwiller. So a lot of the people who helped build modern feminist and modern women's science fiction got their start in that same sort of early magazine community. So if you want to understand how we ended up with anything from Star Wars to Star Trek, Superman to Batman, intergalactic travel to microscopic worlds, profound meditations on the nature of being human to thrilling tales about Martian princesses, you have to look at Pulp Fiction. Argosy, Blue Book, Adventure, Adventure Black Mask, Mask horror, stories, horror Stories, Flying Aces, flying aces. and there was a lot of it. Marvel Tales, Marvel Oriental, Tales stories, Oriental Stories, Planet Stories, planet stories Spicy Detective, spicy detective love, story love Story Magazine, magazine Western, Western story, story Magazine, magazine Weird Tales. But what I want to do in this episode in particular is to look at some of the commonly held ideas about pulp fiction and about science fiction more generally. So here are a few things that we all know. One, science fiction was and continues to be mostly consumed by men. Two, science fiction is, for the most part, aimed at 12-year-old boys. Three, there were very few women writers of science fiction between Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and the new feminist SF of the 60s and 70s. Four, those few women who did write SF were forced to write under male or androgynous pseudonyms in order to make it in an utterly male-dominated industry. So you can probably guess where I'm going with this. Yes, all of these are myths. They're ideas that are completely, demonstrably false. So let's start with the readers. Who exactly was buying and reading all of these SF pulp magazines? There's a joke in the science fiction community that the golden age of science fiction is 12 and, and that all science fiction is sort of written for 12-year-olds and especially 12-year-old boys. And I think that that's an assumption that often gets carried out into mainstream culture as well. And it certainly is true. There were science fiction magazines that were definitely aimed at, at young people and especially young boys. But having said that, there were a number of science fiction magazines that were aimed at families, at general readers. We know that Hugo Gernsback, the, the father of modern science fiction, he was really interested in getting everyone to read, men and women, boys and girls, uh, scientifically inclined people, literarily inclined people, really saw it as the literature of the future. And there were a number of other editors, many of whom were, who worked with Gernsback, who were themselves involved in progressive social causes and really saw science fiction as a great way to share ideas about what different futures might look like with, with different kinds of populations. Um, by the 1940s and 50s, when the magazines started doing readers' polls, they, they were maybe surprised, I guess, at the time to learn that actually the readership was considerably older than what people had anticipated and that about 40% of all readers were women. When I was doing this research, I even found that there was uh, one of the later pulp magazines, because the pulps really kind of continued, magazine science fiction certainly continued through the 50s and, and we still have it today. But um, a, a few, magazines began to change their size in the 40s and 50s. They went from being a larger format, like scientific journals, to digest size. And at least one magazine, I think it was Galaxy, uh, said that they did it based on those readers' polls because they wanted women to be able to fit the magazines into their handbags. And I think that's great. I still carry those magazines around in my bag, so I, I appreciate that a lot myself. So people of all ages, male and female, were reading science fiction slipping it into their handbags to take it out when they got a chance. 
The writers of early SF were, like the readers, far more varied than is often imagined. Which is how Professor Yazik first came to publish not one, but two anthologies gathering together the lost or often sidelined female voices in science fiction. Sisters of Tomorrow and The Future is Female are two great collections, both readily available online, and I'll put links to them on the WTTE website as well. We always all talk about uh, the fact that the, the genre was founded by a woman, by Mary Shelley with Frankenstein in 1818. And then we all recognize and often celebrate the rise of feminist science fiction in the 60s and 70s. And, and we, you know, we still have a lot of the architects of that science fiction with us today. And, and we certainly appreciate it in terms of the legacy of Ursula Le Guin and let's say the recent accomplishments of someone like N.K. Jemison, who just became, you know, the first person author of, of any sex or race to win three Hugo Awards in a row for the best novel. So that's an unheard of accomplishment. And, and we really appreciate now, I think, what these women bring to the table. But it, when we tell our histories of science fiction, there tends to be this kind of almost 150-year gap between uh, these authors. And so I was really interested in thinking about this. So we have a marvelous uh, science fiction collection in our library. And so I just started going through the old anthologies, and I was astonished to find how many women were in every anthology. And these seem to be women who were celebrated and appreciated and admired and occasionally hated and and, and, and uh, made people annoyed. But that's exciting, too. They caused controversy. And I thought, wow, where did all of this go? How did we lose all of this out of history? And so I did my first uh, edited anthology, which was Sisters of Tomorrow. And that anthology really focuses on the first one or maybe two generations of women who helped build science fiction as a genre. And what I, I really liked about that book was that we looked at how women contributed to science fiction in all different areas of science fiction production. So, you know, obviously, when we think about science fiction, I think a lot of us think about either film or, or writing, but women were also contributing as editors, as science journalists, as poets, and as artists. And it was fascinating to me to see how their concerns and often their literary techniques carried across these different moments of production. So is there a noticeable difference between science fiction written by men and women at this time? Well, the answer is yes and no. But before I explain what I mean by that, I want to take a very quick break. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a collective of great Irish podcasts. And I just wanted to play you a short trailer from one of our other shows. You can also head to headstuff.org to have a listen to all the other shows. Up to 90, the podcast where we discuss anything and everything from the 90s. So, we're going to talk like Louise Woodward, Italian 90, Macarena, Julie. Goodfellas Pizza, uh, Macaulay Culkin, like, because he was such a big deal. We all, we'd Julie. all just think. Yeah? They'll get it. Will they? Of course. Okay. Up to 90, it's a podcast about the 90s. With me, Emma Dorn. And me, Julie J. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Catholicmatch.com, Tinder, um, Plenty of Fish, you know, all the usual oh, spots. Julie. They'll get it. Up to 90. So, back to the science fiction authors then. In some respects, male and female authors of SF were writing about exactly the same things. This was a time when the common tropes and plot lines of SF were being developed. Plots that, to be honest, haven't really changed at all in almost a century. And everyone writing science fiction was concerned with similar ideas. In 1931, the author Claire Winger Harris 
listed what she called the 16 possible science fiction plots. How many Hollywood blockbusters can you name in the last few years alone with these plots? Interplanetary space travel. Adventures on other worlds. Adventures in other dimensions. Adventures in the micro or macrocosmos. Gigantic insects. Gigantic man-eating plants. Time travel, past or future. Monstrous forms of unfamiliar life. The creation of super machines. The creation of synthetic life. Mental telepathy and mental aberration. Invisibility. Ray and vibration stories. Unexplored portions of the globe. Submarine, subterranean, etc. Superintelligence. Natural cataclysms. Extraterrestrial or confined to the Earth. So, you know, that's basically all of science fiction. Certainly any of the major SF blockbusters of recent years fit in there somewhere. Guardians of the Galaxy, Inception, Arrival, Ex Machina, Mad Max Fury Road, Interstellar, and so many others. But yeah, it's amazing how many of those plots we still see today. There's, there's a couple that are not as relevant anymore. We don't see as many stories about rays, like X-rays and disintegrates. Rays and vibrations are not as popular as they used to be, which I, I think it's time to bring it back, don't you? I mean, it's been a while. I think, I think we need to return to the rays and the vibrations myself. Hmm, maybe no man-eating plants these days? Well, actually, no. No, did you see Annihilation, right? Uh, Jeff Vandermeer, he, he does gigantic man-eating plants. Okay, so they're all there. And if there weren't necessarily any huge differences in the plot lines that various SF writers chose to use, there was often a difference in focus and approach between male and female writers of science fiction. It almost feels like women... I don't want to say would do more, but maybe I do want to say that, that they drew our attention to places that men weren't thinking about as much. And that had to do with the home and, and personal spaces and private spaces. And they were often really good at inviting us to think about the ways that science and technology would change not just the larger landscape of life, but our everyday lives as well. So you get a lot of early stories where um, where women are freed from the 16 hours of chopping wood and carrying water that had comprised women's work up until that time. But all of a sudden, because you could inhale food essences or eat a pill, they all of a sudden they have all this extra time, and so they can go and make art and do politics and help lead us into the future. So you get a lot of stories like that. And, and sometimes they're very broad and utopian, and sometimes they're used for really great effect. So... My very favorite one is there's a story by Leslie F. Stone um, called Into the Void, and um, a male and a female, two, two astronauts, one male and one female, they're on a spaceship. They think they're going to go to Mars, but they kind of take a wrong turn and head into another galaxy. And they've got months to kill till they get to the next galaxy. So they spend all their time having smoking competitions and then competing to see who can do the dishes best. And it's just such a kind of cool, weird moment, and it feels very human. And And I think that maybe that's what women really were able to do in some ways is by bringing in these domestic and intimate moments, they they brought some kind of human depth and, and, and really nuanced characterization in, in early science fiction. Claire Winger-Harris is another important name from this time. It was her list of 16 plotlines we've just been discussing. She has a great 1928 story, The Miracle of the Lily, about pesticides and environmental problems, about issues of cooperation between species and planets, it's a story that's both very relevant today and was really innovative at the time. And Harris is a useful example in countering another of the myths I outlined at the beginning, that women who did write SF in this period did so under pseudonyms. 
Harris was a pioneer in this respect, one of the very first women to be published in a science fiction magazine under her own name. She published her first story in Weird Tales and then ended up in, and that was in 26, that was A Runaway World. And then in 1929, I think, she won a contest that Hugo Gernsback held in Amazing Stories. She, she actually took third place. She was supposed to get $500, which is a pretty nice prize for that time period. I'd take 500 now, frankly, for a story. And um, she and, and I think what was really important is that it made her career. She when when Gernsback published the story, he had a, a, the introduction to the story is now very famous. People quote it all the time because the introduction says, huh, who would have thought a woman would write science fiction? What a strange thing. And yet she wrote this really fantastic story. And here she is. And he seems very surprised by it. And people often talk about that moment um, as, as the moment maybe when the science fiction community first figured out women were interested in science fiction. I personally, my my sense is, after having done a lot of research in this area, is that that was a little bit of a showmanship on, on Gernsback's part. He had hired women as science writers for his radio magazine. So I don't actually think he was too surprised when he found a woman who was interested in science. But what a great way to sell a new genre. Look at this new genre. It's all about science and technology in the future. And this is so important that even housewives want to write it. So I don't know. It just seems like great marketing to me. And Claire Winger Harris was not alone. This is one of the myths that we carry with us about the history of science fiction is that either women weren't writing science fiction right between Mary Shelley and Ursula Gwynne, or if they were writing it, they had to pass as men in order to get published and to survive a male-dominated field. And once again, I was really surprised when I went into um, the archives and started looking at the old magazines. It turns out most women actually published under feminine names. Now, they did often use pseudonyms or they would use multiple names, but men did the same thing. And this was just a strategy used by genre writers and still used by genre writers today. Ask any science fiction writer and they'll tell you this. Um, you know, science fiction does not maybe pay as much money as some other genres of writing do. And so you end up doing a lot of writing and you don't want to flood the market with too much product. So on the one hand, you are indeed going to see people using initials, using pseudonyms, et cetera. But really, I, really, the majority of the women I looked at, I would say easily 90 percent, were publishing regularly under female names. Um, the, the occasions where we do find women either using initials or using male names, uh, it, it tends that decision tends to have been prompted by forces outside the science fiction community. So the famous examples are, for instance, uh, Catherine Lucille Moore, who went by C.L. Moore, and Andre Norton, Alice Mary Norton. And in both cases, they had changed their names uh, for reasons other than because they were writing science fiction. So Moore was uh, working at a bank during the Great Depression, and she knew that she would lose her day job if they found out she had a second paying job. So she specifically used initials to keep her two careers separate. And then the same thing with Andre Norton, or a similar, similar thing. She had gone into the publishing industry writing boys' adventure stories, like young boys' adventure stories. And as that kind of writer, she had indeed been encouraged to change her name. By the time she got to the science fiction community, everyone knew her and knew that she was a woman, but she had established enough cachet under the other name that she simply brought it with her. So there are a huge number of forgotten voices of the Pulp Fiction era. Many of them are forgotten because, well, their work was instantly forgettable. The pulps were churned out and quality could vary a lot. But so many of the great SF writers, male and female, got their start and honed their skills in this early period of the genre. 
and the pubs have a clear and important legacy today. Firstly, there's that sense of hope and optimism, the feeling you get in early SF that science and technology can truly be used to improve society, that humanity can work together towards a better future, something we really need today, facing together a deeply uncertain future of climate change. For a long time, that really is what science fiction was about. And then after World War II, when we became more skeptical about the the benevolence of science and technology, we really started drifting towards more dystopian storytelling. But I think we're starting to see that return to that utopian thrust that we saw in the early pulp magazines. And it's not so much maybe about a sort of naive, gee whiz, let's just build the right technology and stop global warming kind of optimism, but but that optimism that that we can work rationally together to to try to make different futures, even if it's a long and slow and complicated process. Another legacy of the pulps is the artwork. I mean, it's it's really, really distinctive. And I'll put some pulp covers and links on the website for you to have a look at. Early uh, illustrators like Frank R. Paul and Margaret Brundage really set a sort of standard for what science fiction art would look like. And, you know, some people sort of make fun of it because it's uh, it can it can tend towards sort of cheesiness, right? Like gigantic aliens holding little naked women or gigantic women holding little naked men or something. But it can also be marvelous and, and give you beautiful landscapes and uh, spacescapes and, and help you visualize these different worlds and different futures. And we still see that today in so much science fiction. Yeah, it, it can be pretty ridiculous sometimes. But if you think of comic books and graphic novels, of album cover art or the costumes and scenography and so much science fiction film and TV, you realize how much of an influence this artwork has really had. And then, finally, there's you. Well, maybe. I'm assuming if you're listening to this episode, you're a fan of science fiction, whether that's film or fiction or comics or something else. And a huge legacy of the pulps is in the fans, in the creation of the science fiction community. A community that's really like no other. You know, issue one of Amazing Stories, Hugo Gernsback said, we're starting a new kind of science fiction. And in issue two, he said, and we're going to have fan groups. You're going to be involved. You're going to comment on the stories. We're going to have clubs. We're going to explore this together. We're going to build the genre together. And fans took that really seriously, right? I think Gernsback was frankly looking for a cheerleading squad himself. But fans really love that idea of being part of the genre. And, and they have been since day one. And we see that today right in the kinds of massive fan conventions that we have and in the ability of fans to get TV shows back on the air and to meet with each other and do amazing kinds of work with the genre and beyond the genre. So, 93 years after the publication of Amazing Stories, the science fiction tales by men and women, published in small, disposable, ragged-edged magazines on paper so cheap you could see the wood grain, have had quite the legacy. They truly are an essential part of the global language that is science fiction. That's it for another week of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. So, at the end of the introduction to the first issue of Amazing Stories that I was talking about, Hugo Gernsback wrote, How good this magazine will be in the future is up to you. Read Amazing Stories, get your friends to read it, and then write us what you think. We will welcome constructive criticism. And, well, I kind of feel the same way about this podcast. Tell your friends about the show. Get in touch with ideas and feedback. Help me make this show even better. WTTE is on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. You can send me an email or I'm on Twitter at C-E-D-Read. C-E-D-R-E-I-D. 
And there's the website, wttepodcast.com, home of links and pictures and full transcripts and all previous episodes and lots lots more. And, of course, another way you could support the show would be by making a small contribution on the Patreon crowdfunding page. I have another generous new patron this week. Thank you, Emma. I really, really appreciate it. If you want to add your name to my growing list of wonderful people, magnanimous patrons of the arts, then head to patreon.com slash WTTE or just click the link on the WTTE website. Special thanks this week to my wonderful guest, Professor Lisa Yazek. There's more information about Professor Yazek on the website, as well as links to both of her anthologies of women's SF, Sisters of Tomorrow and The Future is Female. I would highly recommend both. And all the authors mentioned in the show are in these two anthologies, so go check them out. The great music you heard this week was by Forests and by the fantastic Cloud Castle Lake. Their debut album, Malinger, is great. I highly recommend you check it out, and there are links on the WTTE site as well to their music. And that's about everything for this week. We're coming up on Words to That Effect episode number 30, which is so many episodes. I am, I'm really excited about that, and I'm going to do something a little bit different for the big 3-0, so details on that one to be announced. And I think that's it. I'll see you in two weeks. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.